to say that someone is prohibited from doing something is not necessarily unwelcome to that person. We say, don't do X. But just because of that doesn't mean we don't want to see you. We don't want to hear. We don't want you involved. We need to be welcoming. That, that's on us. That's on the community. We need to understand. And just because the person is acting a certain way uh, doesn't mean that he doesn't want to be part of the story of the Jewish people. Doesn't mean he doesn't want to be part of an Orthodox community and live an Orthodox life in whatever way, shape, or form that he can uh, bring himself to do. So therefore, it's on us to welcome, even if the specific prohibition is still in place. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. One of the most difficult issues confronting the Orthodox world today is the question of how to welcome people who identify as LGBTQ+, while simultaneously affirming the biblical injunction that forbids sex between two men and the rabbinic prohibition that forbids sex between two women. This initial question, of course, opens up a host of additional challenges, including how do we explain a mitzvah that appears to many people to be immoral? Can we be welcoming to gay couples without undermining the Torah value that encourages the building of a family with both a mother and a father? Does Torah thought and law accept the idea of defining people based on their sexual preference? Can a gay couple adopt according to Jewish law? Should Jewish law make room for some form of gay marriage? Does it make sense for religious Jews to support pride parades? If we are going to be welcoming, does this include allowing men who identify as gay to lead the synagogue services? How can we understand the mitzvah in the Torah that seemingly commands people to permanently repress their basic sexual drives? On this episode of the Orthodox Conundrum, I had the opportunity to ask these and other questions to Rav Yoni Rosenzweig. Rav Yoni, who was a guest on this podcast in August 2021 in episode 76, has a voice that carries tremendous religious weight as he demonstrates deep, unapologetic, and uncompromising commitment to Torah and Jewish law, and concurrently displays real compassion and understanding of the challenges that many people face. Ravioni represents heroic honesty and sensitivity, and I was honored to speak with him forthrightly about this difficult but crucial subject. Before we begin the conversation, let me remind you to share this podcast, read The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. I'm also excited to let you know that this episode will be available on YouTube as well, so go to The Orthodox Conundrum page there to watch our conversation. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, podcasting gets more popular every day, and that means that there are two important pieces of information you need to have. First, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way of reaching hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. And second, if you want to have a podcast, you need to make sure that it's well-produced so that you can be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. So if you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people, or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool, or an organization that wants to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, 
you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality, and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, entertaining, and above all, effective podcast. Ravioni Rosenzweig is rabbi of the Netzach Menashe community in Beit Shemesh and founder of Maglei Nefesh Center for Halakha, Community, and Mental Health. Ravioni Rosenzweig, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm going to open up, Ravioni, with sort of a broad question, and then we'll talk about details afterwards. The opening broad question is a big one. How do we balance the practical reality of welcoming people who identify as LGBTQ with the practical halachic reality that homosexual sex is unquestionably forbidden? Before I answer the question, I just want to say uh, one quick thing, which is uh, I'm sure a lot of people will be listening to this podcast. It's a, it's a difficult topic. People have very you know polar opinions about this as well. I'm sensitive to that. I'm aware of that. And I'm always learning as well about these things. I'm sure that some of the things that I'll say will trouble certain individuals, will have some people, you know, angry or unhappy. I just want to say that I'm always uh, open to discussion, meaning uh, my opinions are not the end of the, everything that I think about uh, this topic. And, you know, if people want to change my mind, if they want to discuss, I'm always open to that. So if someone's annoyed or angry, instead of uh, fuming at your computer or your phone, you're more than welcome to reach out, you know, and discuss. Um, with regards to your specific question, I think that we need to separate between uh, two different things. Okay, and one is the actions that the person specifically is prohibited from doing. And on the other hand, the response of the community to that individual. So when we talk about preserving uh, the dignity uh, of the individual, or we talk about welcoming uh, the individual within our community, that should not have anything to do with our discussion of the prohibition that the Torah puts forth. So... If there is a prohibition on the individual, I personally, and I realize that some people may disagree, I personally don't think that that is unwelcoming. To say that someone is prohibited from doing something is not necessarily unwelcome to that person. We say, don't do X, but just because of that doesn't mean we don't want to see you, we don't want to hear, we don't want to involve. We need to be welcoming. That That's on us. That's on the community. We need to understand that just because the person is acting a certain way uh, doesn't mean that he doesn't want to be part of the story of the Jewish people doesn't mean he doesn't want to be part of an Orthodox community and live an Orthodox life in whatever way, shape, or form that he can uh, bring himself to do. So therefore, it's on us to welcome, even if uh, the specific prohibition is still in place. Okay, let me ask you what you mean by welcoming. What I mean by that is where is exactly that line drawn? I don't know if there is an exact answer. But at what point do we say, for example, that we can welcome everyone but don't condone behavior and then having welcomed them, this part two, I suppose, of the same question, you can be a full member of our shul, you can daven for the Amud, you can get an aliyah. There is no difference between you and any other congregant. Do we say that? Or is there a line that's drawn somewhere before that? Right. That's a great question. And what I learned from my Rosh Hashiva, Zetzal Rabinovich, was that such questions really need to be answered on the ground, you know, by the individual community and by the individual situation. But I'll say this on a general level. I think that, and I, I know that some people get mad when I say this, but uh, this is my position. I think that we need to work together, meaning I think that it can't just be the community that is welcoming. I think that we need to work together with the LGBT individual 
who wants to come into the community. We need to respect what they need, and they need to respect as well what the community needs. And I think that that second part is usually lost in the conversation because we all assume, oh, this individual needs care, this individual needs help, and they do 100%. You know, I'm not saying that that's not accurate. It is accurate. But you have to understand that uh, even straight white men, you know, have feelings and sensitivities. And therefore, if a person, uh, you know, came to me and said, you know, I'm gay, but I want to dive in your shul, can I come? I would say, of course, you know, we'd love to have you, right? But if that individual decided to walk in with his partner holding hands into shul, I think that that would be offensive to some of the people there who hold their very traditional views um, in terms of their religious observance and in terms of their general outlook, right? And I think that people should be aware of that and sensitive to that. So on the one hand, we need to make space for individuals within our communities and uh, understand that they need certain things. They need to also understand where we draw the line and what we need in order to be able to have that conversation. So what I'm trying to say is it's a compromise. Okay. How exactly do we determine how to compromise there? You mentioned your Rosh Hashiva of Rabinovich saying that it has to be determined on the ground in the given situation. What's the basis for that decision? Meaning, if that's the case, why in one shul would it be appropriate for that person not to get an aliyah, and in another shul it's appropriate for them to get an aliyah? Like, what exactly is the grounding behind that? I don't think it's ever appropriate to not give someone an aliyah, but what I meant to say by things being uh, determined on the ground is that it, it is going to be a process. In other words, I think that LGBT people also get an aliyah and should be able to be a chazan, should be able to do all those things. I don't see any issue with that, and I don't think that the community is being properly welcoming if it doesn't allow that. However, however, with all that said, I realize that if someone is entering, let's say, a very, I don't know, very uh, closed community, you know, maybe in sort of Haredi circles, you know, so it could be that community is only able to compromise to a point. So they, they will be, they will need to go through a process in order to get to a point where they're able to, you know, have that person have an aliyah or be a chazan, et cetera, et cetera. Meaning, I don't think that there's any problem with that person doing those things. I think that they should be able to do those things. And I think, once again, if a community is truly trying to be welcoming, they need to allow that. But it's going to be a process for all communities to get to that point. And that's why I said it needs to be determined on the ground what the community is willing to uh, allow at that point. And that's where patients from the LGBT individual needs to come in, where they need to play the long game. So they need to come in and say, all right, I understand that you're not ready for this and this and that. Okay, let's start small. You know, let's start with this, that, you know, eventually we'll get to other things. I want to ask about that phrase itself, the LGBT individual, because there are many Orthodox Jews who really do want to express compassion and be compassionate. And at the same time, they're also troubled by the act of defining someone's identity based on sexual preference. Calling people who identify as LGBTQ in that manner is sort of defining them as a community, perhaps saying that is what you are as opposed to saying that's something that you do. And I've heard some people say that really is anathema to Torah thought, where we don't define people in a way like that. We don't define people based on one thing, that one aspect of their life in that general way, particularly when the thing that we're defining them as is something which is associated with a prohibition. What's your feeling about that? Um, There are a few different points here that I need to make. So first of all, Maybe this is a good point in the conversation to clarify that I realize that there are many there are many letters that can be added to LGBT, you know, whether it's Q and I and plus and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm just trying to uh, streamline the conversation, which is why I'm not going into all that. 
Uh, so I don't I hope that no one takes offense, you know, specifically about which letters I'm using, which words I'm not. Right. So I'm just putting that it's out. It's not there. a statement. Okay. hundred yeah, percent. So that's number one. Number two, I think that most LGBT individuals would agree with you. In other words, would agree with what you're saying. I don't think that they themselves, that I think they see themselves as being uh, merely or completely uh, defined by their sexual preference. I think they also see, you know, that they have other worlds, obviously, that they connect with um, that are important to them. Uh, but the problem is that I think a lot of times the world is defining them in such ways or the world is troubled by what their sexual preference is. Meaning, in a sense, one might say it's our failing as a society that we care so much what the person is doing in the bedroom and who they prefer to be with or not to be with. Now, it's true that the Torah does also busy itself with that, but the Torah, uh, you know, generally legislates, you know, that for the individual, so that he should know what not to do and what he has to do. But it's not necessarily saying that, you know, society should start prying into every single individual's life. So yes, I, I actually agree with the comment in general that I think talking about LGBT individuals as such and labeling them as such is probably on some level like a misnomer. It's not really true that that's how the innocent and anymore that I should be defined as a straight man. You know, I don't think that that really defines who I am and, and what I'm sensitive to. But for the purposes of these conversations, you know, we need to use that term because it's just easier to relate in that sense. But I agree. I, and I think, once again, I think LGBT individuals also agree with that. You know, they don't want to be defined merely by their sexual preference. They have much deeper strata of their personality and their ideology that they would like to discuss, not just that. And let me ask you about something which has been in the news recently only because of political developments in Israel. What's your feeling about something like a pride parade, where on some level someone would say being part of that is defining yourself in a very specific way? That's a very good question. I've often been asked about uh, pride parades and whether I would go to one. The answer is that I would not go to a pride parade. But there, but what what is the reason for that? So uh, through my answer, I'll, I'll answer your question. The reason is because I don't like, in general, I don't, I don't uh, sign declarations and uh, you know all kinds of uh, uh, rabbinical letters and things like that because I find that allying myself with a specific text uh, is usually not uh, specific enough to what I think. In other words, it's a broad text and it impl implies many, many different things and some things which I can simply get behind. So therefore, I find myself lost in the broadness of the generalization of the text that is being put forth. Even when I when I, even when I really agree with a with a with a statement or with a position, I try not to sign such letters and not to be involved in such things. It's the same thing with a pride parade. Being part of the pride parade is I mean there there really is a, a whole gamut of positions that I might hold uh being in the pride parade. But going to one many times to other people implies that I hold by all of the positions that I support everything that the Pride Parade stands for. And I don't necessarily support everything that the Pride Parade stands for. So it's hard for me to identify, you know, even if the parade, and I'm assuming, right, that we're talking about a parade that is done tastefully and modestly, and even if it's such, right, I, and even though I do believe that there are that there is a, a place for it, you know, in terms of people feeling accepted and feeling part of the community, feeling seen, you know, and in my work on mental health, I see how important that is. With all that, I find myself I find myself uh, having a difficulty allying myself with broad positions that I couldn't possibly uh, sign on to uh, in their entirety. Okay. 
I understand that. You mentioned mental health, so I want to go into that a little bit. Some people have reached out to me privately and mentioned that whenever LGBTQ issues are discussed, that there's an extra degree of wariness we need to have simply because statistically, suicide is apparently much more common among people who identify that way. And given that, it's something which we have to be extra careful in discussing. So my question, Ravioni, really is being frank about this. Given that suicide is more prevalent in the LGBTQ population, how can we balance the need to discuss the prohibition? We're talking about Torah here. We're talking about a prohibition. It's clearly a sore with the need to be sensitive without exacerbating that possibility of someone experiencing suicidal ideation. Right. It's a very important question. We have to be very sensitive. That's what I think. And I think that people are are sensitive about being sensitive. In other words, they don't like that because because of the prohibition. They say, they say, well, why can't I just say what I think? Why can't I just say what the Torah says? The Torah, the Torah already said it. I'm not saying anything of myself. You know, the Torah's already said it. So why can't I just tell you, well, you know, to their face, you know, it's such and such and such. The answer is twofold. Number one, first problem is that a lot of times people add things, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but they add things what the Torah actually says. They put layer upon layer of interpretation and ideology, um, at the end of which, uh, what the person you're talking to hears is you and not the Torah. They're hearing your position and your personal feelings, and those feelings can be sometimes offensive. So, you know, you should be careful of that. But the second reason is, because, yeah, LGBT individuals really do suffer greatly in terms of stigma and in terms of what society thinks about them, and within religious society, all the more so. So it's a very, very complex situation uh, for them to be in. And we should have, we should really have maximum sensitivity to that distress. It's very real. We have to know that it's very, very real. They do not feel like they belong. I, I once, I don't know if people uh, on this podcast have spoken to religious uh, LGBT individuals. When if when you do speak to them, you realize that they don't feel many many of them don't feel like they belong in either world. Meaning, not only do they feel like they don't belong belong in the religious world because of uh, certain um, positions or outlooks that people have, also the what's called the LGBT community. I don't really like using that term, but the LGBT community. Uh, doesn't accept them because many times they hold more conservative views than those that than other individuals within that community. So they don't feel like they belong anywhere. And a person without a home, a person without a structure, without stability, without an anchor, that's horrible. That's terrible. It's something that we need to really think about as a community, you know, what we are looking to achieve, right, with regards to such individuals. So so yes, the bottom line is when you're talking to an LGBT individual, even if they're not religious, the Kalba Homer, I think how much more so if they are trying to be religious, right? You have to understand that they do not feel, many times, I'm not saying everybody, many times they do not feel properly anchored within their community. And therefore, anything that you say, like a, like a, a, a stiff breeze, you know, could, uh, could sometimes unmoor them from where they are. So, yeah. Maximum sensitivity, I think, is definitely uh, needed in that situation. Ravioni, can you elaborate on what you meant before when you said that a lot of people are quoting themselves, they're adding things rather than actually quoting what the Torah or Chazal say? What did you mean by that? Um, I think that, for example, okay, let's let's take the, I mean, I'm not going to go into the whole analysis of it, right? But for example, the word to'eva, all right, which is used in the Pasuk, in Vayikra, Yudcheret, right? to define the uh, define gay sex. 
right? If two men sleep with each other, that is defined by the Torah as a toivah. So then people come out and say, it's an abomination, it's an abomination, what you're doing is an abomination, right? I completely disagree with that entire sort of uh, speech because, I, first of all, I don't think it's true. I think that if a person looks at the Torah carefully, and I think they look at the Gemara in the Dari of Dachnun Aleph, the story of Bar Kapara and Revi, and you read that Gemara and you understand how it relates, and I can't do the whole analysis here in your podcast, but if you look at that, you understand that the term Torah is it's being used um, in that context is completely different than the Torah I used in other contexts. Um, and I'm not saying that in order to, you know, in order to sugarcoat what the Torah is saying. You know, I think the Torah is definitely saying it's prohibited. And I think the Torah defines it as Masa Eretz Mitzrayim and Masa Eretz Kanat. I think that's the proper definition. You know, it's the things that the Egyptians did, things that the Canaanites did, and it's definitely sexual behavior that's prohibited. But uh, the term abomination, I think, is a misnomer. I think it's not correct. I think it's not what the term Torah means in that context. And when people say that, I feel like they are projecting to some extent what they think, you know, upon the Pasuk. And they start layering it up and they say the Torah, and basically they give the feeling that the Torah is against the individual, which is also not true. So the person feels that they are unloved when it's not true that the action is prohibited. It doesn't mean that they personally are unloved or unwanted. So when people talk about this and they say, once again, they like innocently ask, What's the problem? I'm just saying what the verse says. I'm just saying what the Torah says. You know, that is not fair. This is not a fair statement. You are quoting the Torah in a specific context and with a specific tone of voice that is giving the person the feeling that they are unwanted and that they, as a person, they are lesser than you are and that as, a, as an ethical individual, they don't uh, rise up to your high standards. And all that is layered in to seemingly innocent speech. I think that we need to be honest about what the Torah says. I don't think we can sugarcoat that. And I am always honest about it. You know, I never say something is is, is allowed uh, when it's prohibited. But saying beyond that, I think, can be very, very hurtful many times. Let's talk about that, that specific commandment. Something that troubles a lot of people, I think particularly in probably younger generations, is this concept that the Torah is prohibiting something which, in their minds, is unavoidable, something which the people can't help, and therefore the Torah is asking them to do something fundamentally against every inclination they have, which means the Torah is asking them to do something which is immoral, if you want to say that. Meaning, rather than saying homosexual sex is immoral, they're saying the prohibition is immoral. How would you respond to that claim? It's one of the most difficult topics, obviously. You know, I don't have a magic wand, you know, obviously to solve this problem. We have to be honest that the Torah does prohibit it. And that has to be our starting point. The question is what we do with that. Okay, so let's let's break it down. Okay, when people say it's immoral, I just want to make sure that we're clear about, because I understood your question, but I want to make sure that people listening to you also understand what we're talking about. Because people say it's immoral for all kinds of reasons, and some of them are not what the Torah is saying. Is the Torah prohibiting love? It's not talking about love. Love is an emotion. Sex is an action. Torah is not prohibiting love. I understand that many times those two things come together. I get that, you know. But nevertheless, uh, is the Torah legislating who you can love? I mean, the Mishnah itself, right, as we know in the Sechadavot, says that the greatest love is between David and Yonatan. Obviously, they weren't talking about sexual love or romantic love. They were talking about a love that two people have for each other. But it was, says David, you know, he has a great significant love for another man, for Yonatan. 
And uh, like I said, once I'm, once while I'm sure that that's not of a romantic nature, but it is a deep and abiding love uh, that he has. So I don't think the Torah is legislating, you know, against love between two men. I don't think that is uh, where the Torah is going with this. Neither, I think, is it trying to uh, legislate against an individual. Like Torah is legislating against me, against who I am. You know, let's again, I don't think the Torah is doing that either. And I want to be clear about what this means, and I hope it's okay if I go into a little bit of detail. Please do. There's a famous Rambam in Morin Nebuchadnezzar, in the Valley of the Plex, Hela Gimel, uh, Perak Lamed Dalin. Very famous Rambam. The Rambam says uh, something that when I was in Shira Bed in Yeshiva, I found shocking. Uh, and then I, I went to, ran over to the rabbi and he explained it to me. Uh, but it was like, I, I couldn't, it was the first time I ever read anything like this. The Rambam writes there, the Torah is not good to everybody. He says, sometimes the Torah is bad to people. He says, not, the Rambam says, not always, not usually, but it does happen. So I was like, so I, I was shocked by this. Can the Torah possibly legislate something that isn't good for, for other people? But the explanation is such, okay, that the Torah doesn't always say something that is immoral, but it has applications which are immoral. So let's take, for example, giving a get as a, as a good example of that. If a man, if the Torah says that the man has to give the get to the woman, the chatav la setel kritut, I don't think, and I know that some listeners might disagree, I don't think there's anything immoral about that. In other words, it has immoral applications. The actual statement that a man should be the one giving the get to the wife, I don't think that in and of itself is an immoral thing. And many times it goes smoothly and everything's fine. But when it doesn't go smoothly, there are applications that are immoral, meaning you could use that to blackmail individuals. You could use that uh, language and that process to hurt other people. And that's true for many laws in the Torah that can be used in certain contexts uh, immorally. I don't think that the Torah, when it prohibited uh, gay sex, meant to hurt anybody. It meant to make a statement about the permissibility of sexual actions which were wasteful in the sense that they're not procreative. They, they don't lead to procreation. So therefore, two men should not be together because their sexual act uh, is wasteful in that sense. I know that some people might ask, well, how can you marry a woman who's barren? Or how? Okay, there are lots of questions you can ask as a result of that statement. I'm not going into that right now. But my, my point is that the uh, law in and of itself, I don't think was meant to hurt anybody. I think it was meant to make a statement about the kind of sexual relations that are supported by the Torah and the kind that are not. Does that mean, does the application of that, of the law, does it have hurtful applications? Yes, it does, but that does not make the law in and of itself immoral. It has immoral applications. Now, what happens when there are immoral applications? Just as when a woman cannot receive a get, then I believe that rabbis should be up in arms and act very decisively and quickly to make sure that uh, the walls of the Torah cannot be used to blackmail or hurt someone. In the same way, I think that with regards to LGBT individuals, while we cannot simply uh, get rid of the prohibition, that does not mean that we should not be there for the individual and try to make their life as easy and as good as possible within the framework that has been given. Okay, thank you for that answer, Ravioni. Tali Rosenbaum and I on the Intimate Judaism podcast once hosted Rabbi Benny Lau, and he suggested 
I don't want to quote him exactly because I don't want to misstate what he said, but yeah. effectively he said there is room in halakha, in Jewish law, to allow for some sort of commitment ceremony. I'll call it marriage, even though that may not be the term he used. Not classic kiddushin. He said that's obviously impossible according to Jewish law. But some sort of ceremony to allow and to acknowledge the love between two men or two women. And again, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I understood it as almost maybe parallel to the fact that we don't ask if a heterosexual couple that's married, if the wife goes to the mikvah and is keeping the laws of Tarat Mishpacha. We don't ask that. We just assume that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing or we don't care or whatever. And he said the same thing could be true here. Once they go into their bedroom, that's their decision. What they do is their own decision. We don't have to assume anything. We don't have to assume they're doing a Torah prohibition. What's your feeling about that? Is there such a thing, given what you just said, using David and Yohanan as an example, there can be love between two men, is a commitment ceremony possible according to Jewish law and Jewish thought? Um, another difficult question, uh, but I will, if it's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give a little background and then I'll answer the question. I think that the Jewish community has failed significantly uh, in a broad sense. I'm not saying all communities everywhere, but in a broad sense, I think we failed uh, significantly when it comes to anything that's not the nuclear family. And to be clear, I'm very supportive of the nuclear family. I think that it's a holy structure. In other words, I think that the if you have a man and a woman and children, I think that that is the nucleus of what uh, Jewish living is about, for sure. And I find it critical to the uh, existence of the Jewish people, maybe people in general, not just the Jewish people, you know, that those families continue to be and that they are the nuclear family. But with all that said, with all that said, and it's not just about LGBT individuals, if a person is not a child, up to the age of 25, after the moral left, right? If afterwards he's not married, they don't find their place within the Jewish community. Many bachelors, you know, who are, you know, getting older, they don't know what to do with themselves. They don't feel part of what's going on, right? The the notices in shul, the activities that the community does as a community are many times family-focused and family-oriented. So uh, what are we supposed to do with that? Single mothers, right? Divorced parents, things like that, right? They many times can find themselves within the Jewish community. It's not just about LGBT individuals. In general, we are not good with caring for people and providing structure for people. We don't fit into that classic mold. And that's a problem that we have to deal with. And I've, I've heard that many, many times from all kinds of people. So the LGBT question here is, I think, part of that. It's not its own question. In other words, let me put it differently. What are we offering people who are uh, LGBT? What are we offering them within the Jewish community? What kind of care and what kind of solutions? Meaning we say to them, oh yeah, we really are welcome. We want you to be here. Want you to be here in what way? In what way do you mean that? What In what way can I live a fulfilling life as an Orthodox LGBT person? How will that be? Right? Am I able to to create a relationship with another man? Am I able to do something with that person? Am I able to live together even if we never touch? You know, what can we do in order to live a fulfilling life? People sometimes ask me questions about gay sex, like like we've already discussed, about the Pasuk and the Torah, etc. I got to tell you the truth, uh, Rabbi. I, I don't think that that's the main issue. I don't think that that's... I, I'm, I'm sure that it troubles people, don't get me wrong, but I don't think that that's the main issue that we need to deal with. The isolation the loneliness that LGBT individuals have to go through if we tell them that they have to be celibate their entire lives, that to me is a much greater problem and a much greater contributor to the suicide rates that you mentioned before 
then the question of whether they can specifically have gay sex in the way that the Torah prohibited, you know, yes or no. And I don't personally also don't think that if I said yes to gay sex, that that would solve the, the suicide rate. I think that the, the suicide rates would remain the same if I allowed gay sex. I don't think that they would change so long as the attitude of the community doesn't change. What they need is something within the community, a structure. And therefore, I come back to your question about Rabbeinu Lau. So he was talking about, about basically creating a structure for an LGBT individual to somehow start um, anchoring themselves within the community of creating a relationship with another man, maybe living together, maybe all those things. That's a very difficult question. I'm not uh, totally uh, opposed to that. I have, we have to think about how to make that happen in a way that makes sense, that it does not violate Torah law, that uh, you know that the that the Jewish community can possibly uh, accept, you know. But we have to really think about that's that that's what keeps me awake at night. Okay, not the questions about the verse in the Torah, but the question of what am I actually offering a religious LGBT individual within the Orthodox community? What kind of life am I structuring for that person? You know, that would be fulfilling and good and make them happy, even if they can't have gay sex. Right? That to me is the main question. And I think, Ravioni, that that's so important simply because the attitude of our community, for historical reasons and reasons that I'm not I'm not blaming anybody, towards people who are LGBT, even if they don't get married because they want to keep halakha. Let's say a person is alone and he says, I'm not going to get married because I am a from Jew, even though I identify as gay, and therefore I'm going to have to be by myself. At the same time, even though that person is effectively a tzaddik, he's doing everything necessary to keep halakha without denying who he is, and and that's what he should be doing according to Torah law, at least in terms of not having gay sex. At the same time, I am sure that in the vast majority of communities, he's looked at as some sort of sugbet, as not a full member of the community, because even though he's not doing anything wrong, he's doing everything right, because he identifies as homosexual, therefore he is not a full, he can't be a full member of our communities. And it, I don't have an answer. I don't know how we change attitudes to allow, let's say that, that example, to allow people to think differently than the way they've always thought. What would you recommend? That's hard. It's hard. I don't, I mean, first of all, this podcast might help, but, uh, but I, I agree with you that uh, it's very, very difficult to know how to how to change people's minds. Look, uh, you know, when we talked about doing this podcast, I was also worried, and I think you were worried about, you know, talking about these things, you know, in the way that we're talking about them. And I'm still worried about it, to be honest. You know, I don't know how people will react to this podcast and, you know, whether, you know, people will choose to take things out of context or to look at the specific, or even not to take things out of context, just to generally be annoyed by certain things that were said. And that's because people have very, very polar opposite views on this issue, and they are staunchly ensconced in their views and, and refuse to leave them. And therefore, it's very hard to have a conversation, I feel, you know, uh, about these issues without running into someone's already preordained agenda. And I'm sure that people are searching uh, my words and your words in this very podcast to figure out what our agenda is, what we're trying to do. So, you know, I, I will spell out my agenda, okay? You know, to be clear, my agenda is not to uh, bring down the Jewish family or to change the way or to deconstruct, you know, what the Torah is saying about what a family needs to be. I'm not trying to do any of those things. I'm not trying to redefine. I've already said, I think that the classic family unit is holy. And I think that the Torah legislates about that unit. I think it sees it as the nucleus of what Jewish life should be. 
you know, I'm not hiding any of that and I'm not trying to deconstruct that or reconstruct that or anything of that sort. But what I do think is that we simply need to find a place that we can have within our community such individuals and treat them with compassion, with dignity, and offer them something, offer them something, a life that they could, you know, they could somehow live. And I think that if we don't do that, then we will be treating them so bad, exactly the way that you described. So the, the thing that we need to really do, if we change our minds, right, the thing that the perspective that we need to change, okay, is that the LGBT individual is not a threat to the Jewish community. I think that's the problem. I always say the difference between Hill Shabbos and gay sex in people's minds, right, whether it's conscious or subconscious, is that Hill Shabbos is viewed as a sin, but the LGBT individual is viewed as a threat. In other words, this individual is not just doing his own thing in his own home. He is going to threaten the very structure, the very basis of the Jewish community. And if we support this, if we condone this, if we do anything to show that we're okay with this, that's what's going to have tomorrow. It's going to be your kid and my kid and every kid, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think that that's true. I don't think that that's correct. I understand why people feel that way. I understand why they're worried about that. I'm not saying that it's you know, like totally out there and I'm so weirded out by this way of thinking. But so long as we think that way, people will, con so long as we will feel like they are a threat to the Jewish community, you're right. They will continue to feel so bad. That's the kind of thought we need to change. Ravioni, you mentioned just now your kid and my kid. So I'm going to ask a very sensitive question now. If a parent approaches you and tells you that their child has come out as gay or lesbian, how would you react to that parent? What would you advise that parent? What would you tell that parent how to think? I'll tell you what I tell people who come to me and say that they are gay or lesbian. And I would say that in a sense the same thing to uh, the parent to say. Uh, when people come to me and tell me that, I say to them, I'm here from you. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help you. I can't promise you what that's going to look like. I always tell people, I can't promise you a specific psaac or a specific uh, you know way of moving forwards. You know, each person, that's why I said before, I don't like the term the LGBTQ community, right? Because I don't believe that there really is a community in the sense that everybody thinks the same thing. My experience with LGBT individuals is that they don't all think the same thing, but they have different needs. They're able to feel feelings in a different way. Uh, they're in a different space. So each person has their own path, and I try to help them on that path. I would say as a parent, right, I would, I would offer the same sort of statement to my child. I would say, first of all, I love you. And I'm with you and I support you all the way. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to get through whatever it is together, you know, et cetera. Um, we'll just take it one day at a time. That's what I would say. I want to ask you about the Torah prohibition again, but in a different direction, because some people have tried to push the envelope and say that maybe we can, I'll give a few different options over here. Maybe we can reinterpret the Pasuk and Vayikra in such a way that practically speaking, gay sex actually is not prohibited, or at least not in most cases. Others would say, well, we can't do that. That's going too far. But perhaps there'll be a Sanhedrin in the future that will be able to do something similar or be able to reinterpret it, darshan it in some other sort of way. Or perhaps a third option is to do the same thing that we see about certain mitzvot in the Torah, such as Ben Sora Moreh, Bai Hamaduga, These are various cases where Chazal effectively said that the Pasuk is inapplicable for various reasons, various I don't want to call it hedges, but reasons that in practice, it doesn't take place even if it's on the books. And some people have suggested we can maybe do the same thing either now or in the future when it comes to the prohibition against homosexual sex among men. 
what do you think about any of these options? Um, I think that, uh, you know, as has become clear throughout this conversation, I'm, I'm more of a traditionalist in that sense. So the first position, I I read a lot about that first position. I, I totally disagree with it. Um, I don't believe that the Pesukian can be reinterpreted in that way. I don't. I think that it flies against, uh, you know, the precedent uh, of, of really hundreds and hundreds of years of halachic precedent that didn't interpret uh, things in that way. And I don't think we could just invent the wheel, you know, in that sense. Uh, so I don't, I don't believe that you can, that you can really say that uh, in the way that some people do. The second position regarding a, a Sanhedrin, I mean, that's a very interesting question. Obviously, according to the Rambam, that would be an impossibility. The Rambam in his certain principles of faith clearly uh, outlines that no one can disagree with the Torah or change a Pasuk in the Torah. And I, I think that the Sanhedrin, according to him, would would uh, be hard pressed to do such a thing. But there are other positions, but less well known, like such as the Kuzari, you know, who seems to extend a greater amount of authority to the Sanhedrin, and possibly according to other philosophical uh, positions, uh, it would be possible to do such a thing. Obviously, it's a Hilchavel and Sheikh. I have to wait till that till that actually happens to see what would be, um, you know, if it could be. The third position, I mean, I, I, I also, I don't think that. I find less compelling just because I think it's already the situation. In other words, people, you know, the use of that Gemara uh, anyway, you know, is debatable, but the but the idea that the prohibition is limited, I think is already true. In other words, the prohibition is, if anyone really learns the halacha about this, the fact that the prohibition is relating to a very specific sexual act, even with the sex, it's about a very specific sexual act. And with regards to all the other stuff, meaning Kriva, you know, like uh, the, you know, like chibuk, nishuk, hugging, kissing, you know, all those sorts of things, hood, or, or all the other prohibitions. I mean, anyway, the whole thing is very dubious and debatable whether those things exist. So, therefore, I think the prohibition, anyway, quite limited to a very specific set of behaviors and actions. Of course, beyond that, you can always discuss the terabanans. You can also discuss uh, the rabbinic prohibitions or what's right and what's proper within a society, you know, et cetera. But that's a whole different discussion at, uh, as is. So I do I do uh, think that, honestly, if we look at it, the prohibition is limited. And working from that perspective to create, cultivate a life where LGBT individuals in the orthodoxy should be not easy, but doable. What about the suggestion that some rabbis have made that there's a concept in halacha called ones rachmanapatre, which is that when somebody has no choice in a matter, when he's forced into doing something, he's technically exempt from whatever consequence that prohibition has. Like if somebody has a gun to someone's head in the most obvious case and tells them to turn on a light on Shabbos, he can't be punished for that matter. He's forced into doing it. I've heard some people say that people who are gay have no choice and therefore the idea of ones rachmanapatre applies to them. I personally never really related to that particular argument because I've assumed that the concept of ones, of being forced to do something and being exempt as a result, does not apply to sexual matters with the exception of rape. But I have heard some serious people suggest such a thing, and I wanted to know what you think of that. Right. I think Rabbi Norman Lamb was the first one to really uh, uh, suggest that. I think that there's a difference between a lekakila and a dievet. So in other words, I think pausing that as a lekakila is, is really problematic. In other words, to say that a person is not is basically forced to have a sexual act, in a sense, I think that that's difficult to say. I think, like you, I don't really identify uh, with that position as uh, viable. At the end of the day, any sexual act, or well, not, I don't say any, people are, are raped. But uh, any 
any sexual act that is uh, consensual uh, cannot be viewed as honest. And therefore, uh, I wouldn't say that let cuts heal a person can say, well, I can do this because it's an honest. That, that implies, you know, thought on the part of the person and a consideration of the topic. But Bidyebet, you know, I, I can understand that Bidyebet. In other words, if a person says that there is, after the fact, you know, if they want to say, that, you know, with regards to when they stand before Hashem, that there would be like, you know, a leniency that they were, so to speak, under personal, internal duress, you know, to do something, you know, I can understand such a claim, um, but it's up to the fact, not to believe. Okay, let me ask another difficult question. What's your feelings about a gay couple adopting a baby? Do you have any thoughts about that from halachic or any other perspective? Yeah, let's talk about it again. It's a very interesting discussion regarding a single mother, right? Meaning, meaning a woman who is unmarried, can she bring a baby into this world alone? Okay, and there's a very interesting discussion. I think many rabbis were against that. Uh, still an ongoing discussion today to IVF, whether a woman, you know, who doesn't see any prospect of her getting married in the near future, she's already older, she wants to have a child before, it's no longer viable, you know, can't you bring a child into the world? My uh, Rebbe Rab Shelat, who's Hak Shelat from Maladumim, uh, was also very much against that. And he wrote, in that context, you know, he wrote, if this woman you know, wants a child, she should adopt. As he said, you know, she shouldn't have, you know, uh, a child to Yep. And said she should take a child who's already without a home, you know, and that, he said, is men chesed, he's supportive. He wasn't unsupportive of the structure of an unmarried woman having a child or raising a child. He just thought she shouldn't bring a child into the world and another child with, uh, without a father. He thought that those children who don't have parents, obviously, you know, one is better than none, you know, so to speak. That was his position. I know that he didn't talk about LGBT individuals, but I wondered to myself whether it's the same idea. In other words, you know, is it better for a child to be homeless or to be raised by LGBT individuals? To put it differently, when you ask that question, it's not just about society and it's not just about the LGBT individual. There's also another child taken into account over here. And we need to take into account what's good for the child as well. Here there is a child with prospective parents who might care for him uh, or her and take them in and help them and give them a home and give them love and give them... I mean, that's not... We, we can't not look at that side of things. We can't ignore that side of things and only look at the societal implications from the LGBT perspective, right? Uh, so I think that that... Bottom line, okay, I don't have a, a clear answer about that. I think it's definitely a, a relevant discussion to have. I think that within our discussions of how society, how religious society should be uh, accepting and making space for LGBT individuals, I think that discussion should be paramount among them as well. Okay, Ravioni, we're coming close to the end of our conversation. I want to go back to something that you said a bit earlier about how we look at Chilul Shabbat as a sin, but we look at gay marriage or gay sex as a threat. And I wanted to push you a little bit on that because some people would say, that's true, it is a threat. Because as you have mentioned, the idea of the nuclear family with a mother and a father is so central to the ethos of what Judaism is about. It's not something which is incidental. It's the very center. All of Sefer Breshid is about the concept of creating a Jewish family, one could argue. And therefore, 
allowing other forms of families which are not traditional, someone might say it actually is a threat. And we shouldn't downplay that threat, even if we're not going to condemn the individuals. But as a societal matter, we have to look at it seriously, because how can we downplay that value of the traditional family? And inevitably, this argument would say, inevitably, by allowing other forms of relationship to be sanctioned in the Orthodox community, we're going to downplay that traditional family. What would you say to that? It's hard for me to to respond to that because I agree with a lot of it. In other words, I don't disagree with a lot of that, a lot of that statement. Sefer Bereshit, as you say, the laws, many laws in the Torah do revolve around the family. And I I am first in line with a lot of people to try and defend that and protect that. You know, and by the way, it also is uh, part of a general fear that we'll have because of rising divorce rates, because of single parents, because of, uh, you know, many bachelors that are not getting orders, all those things, right, they work together and the LGBT stuff on top of that, you know, people start worrying that we're losing, we're losing control of everything and that it's all being deconstructed and this and that. I, I share those concerns. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying they're not real. What I do say to them though, is that I believe in two things. Okay. The impetus, I'll, I'll say that there's like, there's a, there's a way to do things and there's an impetus. So the impetus for me to push back against that is the suffering of the individual. I understand what they're saying. I think that we need to address the suffering of the individual. Now, to some people, addressing the suffering of the individual means to work against the system or to re or to overhaul the system. I'm not claiming that, and I never have claimed that. I don't think a systemic solution is the way to go. But I do believe that as postgame have done throughout the generations, even with something, even when something is societally problematic, we need to find a way to address the problem of the individual. I always bring the example of the Chalkat Yaakov and the guy who wants to walk into Shul with a seeing eye dog, the blind person. So Rabbi Moshe Feinstein famously said it's fine, but the Chalkat Yaakov did not agree that it was fine. He thought it wasn't okay because he thought it would send the wrong message. So societally, he was against it. Does that mean that he just wrote a tshuva and said, no, you can't go into Shul and I don't care what happens to you anymore? No, he didn't say that. He, in the tshuva, tries to offer different avenues of how the person could get to Shola, what we can do for him, or even if he doesn't get to Shola, how he should, what his perspective should be on that, meaning support for the individual, despite the fact that he wants to do a practice that you find societally detrimental, is not wrong, and it shouldn't come at the expense of that support. That's the impetus. Now, the way to do it, the way to do it is, of course, the real problem, because people say, okay, you want to be supportive, you want to be sensitive, fine, but it will ruin us. So I say, look, we need to sophisticate the way we think about these things. We need to strengthen the Jewish family 100%. And that's why I always say, it's going to take work on both sides. That's what I mean when I say that. LGBT individuals need to, in a sense, I'm sorry to say it this way, they need to learn to not be offended when people say that the Jewish family matters. You know, and that the nuke, the nuclear Jewish family of a of a of a father and a mother and children is important to us and is still central to our. That is not an offensive statement in and of itself, and it shouldn't be considered offensive. And if people want to live orthodox lives as LGBT individuals, they they first need to accept that fact. That's not going away, and it's not going to change. With all that said, once we say that clearly and and crisply, and we we center on that, and we focus, okay. That we still need to create other structures 
to support, and like I said, not just LGBT individuals, but all the individuals within our community who can't build or don't build families. They all need a space. And that's not going to look like the regular classic thing. Whatever you're putting together for uh, older bachelors or for single mothers or single fathers, you should also put in, put in place for LGBTs. They will not fit into the regular mold, but they still need care. So I think that we can do that without threatening everything that we stand for. I do believe it's possible. You've said a lot, and I really appreciate everything you've mentioned today. Any final thoughts you just want to convey to people listening, people part of the LGBTQ community, or people listening who are not part and who want to be more understanding or who want to better understand what you mean? What would your final thought be today? I think we need to come with open hearts and open minds this conversation. That would be my main thing, because we are so entrenched in what we think that we can't see the other side at all. And I think that anybody who comes without... Um, biases to this issue and really wants to solve the thing. Meaning, you have to, you have to stop being so ideological and start being more uh, human, so to speak. In other words, I understand the ideology behind everything. I understand you have a fierce position. I also have fierce positions on different things. I, I put those at the door, you know, when I walk into the room to discuss what the specific LGBT individual needs at this point. What I think about what he's doing or what's going on or what the Torah says really doesn't matter so much to him as what I'll do to help that person in the in the specific moment. And I think that if we start thinking like that a little bit more, doesn't mean we have to give up on our ideologies. doesn't mean we have to give up on what we believe in, but it will hopefully sensitize us much more to the plight of the specific individual. Ravioni Rosenzweig, I really appreciate your being so forthright and willing to talk about a difficult topic and a topic that people often don't like to talk about because it does raise important issues, but it is very important, I think, that we talk today. So I'm very appreciative of you joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum Podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, The Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.